Hello there, this is Howard, and welcome to HowCast. I am sitting here in Tokyo a few days after the Olympics have finished.、Um, it's kind of crazy to think that I came to Tokyo four years ago for the prospect of the Olympics and what that would do for tourism. Um, I think many of us at the time, around 2015, 2016, saw the Olympics as kind of this game changer for Japan. And everyone was you know, trying, to, trying to get in position to, to read the benefits of you know, this huge boom in tourism arrivals. You know, fast forward to 2019, summertime, just one year to go. Everybody was, was super psyched, super ready. Um, hotel operators were trying to acquire as many hotels as they could. And then COVID hits in February 2020, and everything goes to shit. The Olympics postponed to this year.、Um, even leading up to the Olympics, there was a ton of vitriol against it.、Uh, there was a lot of protests, and for good reason, too. I mean, the government never really got COVID under control here in Japan. So, anyways, the games happened. I still think it was a real spectacle of human achievement.、Uh, I really enjoyed watching some of the events. Being from Taiwan originally, I was super happy on how many medals Taiwan actually won this time, including two gold medals one for women's weightlifting and another one for men's doubles badminton.、Uh, you know, I used to make fun of badminton a lot, but damn, it's a pretty exciting sport. So, I probably watched more sports in the past two weeks than I have in the past five years. I watched a bit of judo.、Um, I went into these Olympics thinking that the perfect name for a judoka or a judo athlete did not exist until I saw an athlete named Jasmine Grabowski. Grabowski is the perfect name for a judo champion. That's it. That's my entire stance. That is a hill that I'm willing to die on. Now, some of the other sports really make me wonder do we just have too many sports? For example, we already have basketball, field hockey, and football. Do we really need handball? I mean, it, how, how, many, how many more sports can we combine into a whole different thing, right? I, for one, would really like to see a sport called faceball, where the only way to score a goal is if your teammate throws the ball at your face and it bounces into the goal. Now, that's something I want to see. I'll get season tickets to faceball. And the other sport is power walking. Now, if you've never heard of power walking, why would you? It's. It's a sport where you have to walk as fast as you can. Without bending your knees, I believe. So, what then happens is you have to contort your body and optimize it for speed without bending your knees, which takes away all the power. So, you end up with really heavy swinging hip motions. So, power walking is just like doing a marathon, except you have to force yourself not to be fast. And you have to do it with a lot of attitude. So essentially, it's a sassy marathon. Anyways, congratulations again to all the 
Olympics athletes and teams. I'm really proud of you. And I really hope that they get to come back to Tokyo soon. So today I wanted to talk a bit about how I got started in comedy. And I think this is a phenomenon that, that started quite early in my childhood. Um, I remember that I was, uh, I was five years old and my parents got me this cassette tape of um, something called Xiangshen, which is a form of Chinese comedy. It's kind of like, um, I think they have a similar style in Japan. I can't remember the name of it, but it's essentially two people and they gab back and forth. And one of them plays the, the straight man, as they say. So the person who basically sets up the jokes for the, uh, for the joker. So I started listening to this to fall asleep when I was five years old. And one of the things I noticed was how these narratives can stretch from very funny, hilarious, to kind of somber, kind of dark, kind of nostalgic. So I was, I was, really, um, I was really attracted to that form of storytelling. And when I, when I was 12, uh, we were living in Vancouver. I was going to a uh, private boys' school at the time. And I, I remember in Mr. Statham's seventh grade English class, we had to present a book report about All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a book about young German soldiers dealing with the personal aftermath of, of World War I. So fairly heavy topic and being 12 at the time I obviously did not understand much of that narrative um, so faced with something that I didn't really understand I approached this book report with just one central question how do I make this funny the creative choice I made in the end was that I introduced the book's main characters as if I was hosting a runway show so I would literally go, here comes Paul Baumer, the protagonist of our story wearing torn military fatigues from 1918 and, and so on. And for some reason, I did that whole presentation in a southern accent. I wore a cowboy hat and just nonstop talked in like southern slang because I think that's what I thought a western front was. I remember being super nervous. I remember my heart kind of beating out of my chest, but it turned out really well. And then Mr. Statham and, and all my classmates at the time thought, thought it was a really engaging presentation. And that was the first time I really felt the adrenaline of show business and the reward of getting laughs. And I think that was also the moment that I decided I wanted to get more of that. And then as I grew older, um, I started watching late night comedy. This was when I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. I started noticing that from 10 p.m. onwards, David Letterman, Jay Leno, they would come online. Not come online, but, you know, come on the, on the television. And I thought Letterman's top 10 lists were so funny. Even if those references to Boutros, Boutros, Galley were way too advanced for me. I thought Jay Leno had a really tight cadence of joke telling um, when he did his monologues and his crowd work was, was really witty. Like he had such a quick uh, reaction to, to stuff that was happening in the audience. And as I stayed up later and later, I started watching Conan O'Brien and there was just something different about him from the beginning. 
like all the other guys, they were funny, they were buttoned up, you know, you could imagine them at a, at a dinner party, just killing, absolutely killing at some upper, upper crust Victorian mansion. Um, on the other hand, Conan had this like really silly, almost carnival barker energy. Like, I, I don't know exactly what gave me that impression. It, it could have been one of his recurring characters, which was called the Masturbating Bear. And it's everything you imagine it to be. It's a bear who masturbates on stage. Um, it could also be, uh, you know, Triumph, the incel comic dog. Those of you who have seen him know what I'm talking about. He's hilarious. It's, it's a hand puppet um, that's being controlled by one of Conan's longtime collaborators named Robert Schmeigel. Um, so anyways, I became a huge Conan fan. He had this one segment called The Year 2000, where he basically would, um, would have someone sing, In the year 2000. And then he would make a prediction about the year 2000. Keep in mind, this is back in 1995, so it kind of made sense. Anyway, so my buddy Charlie and I, when we were in college, we hosted a, a variety show called China Night, and we actually replicated that segment. And whatever jokes he made, uh, for example, there was one about um, a, pr a premise about how if zombies took over the world, they would eat everything. And when the world ran out of food, they would reluctantly go to Taco Bell. So we took that joke premise and we substituted Taco Bell for one of the shittiest cafeterias on campus. So you could say I started stand-up comedy kind of copying Conan's jokes. Um, I, I also tracked him through his whole career. I watched him through a pretty painful departure from NBC where he got The Tonight Show. Um, he, he took it over from Jay Leno. And then something like six months later, Jay Leno decided that he wants it back. So basically engineered um, this whole process of NBC kicking Conan out. Um, and then Conan, you know, went on tour. He was he was pretty lost, um, but eventually, you know, he found his way. He landed in TBS and got his own show again. Um, years ago, he also had this one commencement speech at Harvard, which was hilarious. I know he did two. I'm talking about the first one. It was hilarious, and it was actually kind of inspiring because it talks about how. He graduated college not really knowing what to do, kind of landed at The Simpsons because he, you know, he always had a knack for being funny. Um, he's also got this travel segment called Conan Without Borders, which is just a terrific testament to this man's ability to connect with people and not just people, but people from all over the world. Some of his funniest bits came from his, uh, his time in Ghana, his time in Cuba, his time in Tel Aviv. Um, just just amazingly quick wit and just so funny. Um, more recently, he launched his podcast, which uh, for me is pound for pound one of the best podcasts out there. He gets to do longer form interviews with celebrity guests. And uh, he, he's very thoughtful. Um, he asks really good questions. And he's just really great at conversation. And, and that's for... A bunch of different reasons. I think one, he's got extensive knowledge of history, so he's got a lot of topics in his arsenal that he can talk about. 
and um, a lot of the conversation topics he can he can quickly um, he can he can quickly spout out the historical precedents for those. Um, the other thing is that I think he's constantly and consistently introspective, and he's very aware of his own journey and how he's been able to navigate his career from a 30-year-old who really just got pushed into the spotlight um, to, to now, you know, father of two, very successful comedian, uh, but he's still very attuned to all of his insecurities. Um, and I think the third reason why he's so good at conversation is he's got this, he's got this comedic generosity about him. It's, um, it's kind of like, you know, Steve Kerr or John Stockton back in the 90s. This is the only sports analogy you hear me use. But, you know, Steve Kerr and Stockton, they were the, they were the guards who were always setting people up for great shots, alley-oops, whatnot. Conan is always setting other people up for the punchline, and often the punchline is at the expense of himself. So Conan's career ended in, uh, in June of this year, or his career in late night, I should say, ended in June of this year. And his farewell message was, was really touching. And, and there was one part that I remember particularly where he says that he's devoted his entire adult life to pursuing the strange phantom intersection between smart and stupid, he believes it religiously, and he thinks when smart and stupid come together, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And I really got goosebumps when I when I listened to this. Um, you know, I, I've spent my entire adult life trying to do smart things, develop my career, develop my network um, to learn how to, you know, build financial models, to to find mentors and and to brush up on, on, on my weaknesses and, and things like that. And I think co-founding Section L, uh, my, my current uh, hotel company, co-founding that was the culmination of all this serious work that, that I've done so far. All this kind of pursuit of smartness has, has um, led me to being able to co-found this company. But at the same time, I've also spent my entire life with a passion for just really stupid and inane things. Uh, like with me and, and my buddy Mike, we would hold entire conversations using only Family Guy references, using only lines from Family Guy. Um, another one is, you know, before I, I went to a bachelor party, I actually designed this whole elaborate fake coat of arms for a fake private school. And that spent like, I spent like, I don't know, five hours on that. And I think I did that at work too. Um, another thing I used to love doing is just, I would spend hours and sometimes days writing these party invitation emails in pirate speak. Like I would literally say something like, remember to RSVP and really dumb stuff like that. So because of that, I've always kept my personal life pretty separate from from my work life. I just never really thought that the two would would really mesh. Um, I've always thought of my life as dual track, you know, where smart and, and stupid kind of run parallel. 
um, until about, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago, when I had a chance to join um, a new team to, to start up a new hotel brand called Hotel Gen. And there we had a team where it was normal to joke around. It was, it was normal to be lighthearted and, and cheerful at work. And from that point on, I started to realize, ah, oh, shit, this is the kind of spirit and this is the kind of culture that not only do I want to be a part of that, I want to be able to create that. So when I decided to go entrepreneurial, that was the, the one tenet that I always kept in mind is how do I create a culture that allows people to be amused and to be inspired while they're working on something. So this this dual track journey, this you know where the smart and stupid run parallel. Now I'm more convinced than ever that these tracks need to start to converge because uh, you know it's time. Um, I've I personally don't know of any stand up comedian slash hospitality startup CEO, but that doesn't mean I can't be the first one. Um, I personally don't know anyone that has successfully built a world-class hotel brand and was able to manage a career as a you know creator of funny, silly, and honest content. Um, that could be me. Earlier this year, I was a bit bummed out for a while. Um, I had just gotten married in January. And my wife could not get a visa to come to Japan, so that was a real bummer. Um, I fell off a bike and ended up injuring myself, uh, you know, badly enough that that I, I couldn't shower without wincing in pain, and and I had to give up working out for a good two weeks. Um, uh, you know, and I eventually I, I kind of came out of that, and I decided that I was going to make my work as much fun as possible. So since then, I've been a lot more involved in the creative process in all the content that we're putting out at Section L. Um, I, I check and I edit the Instagram captions for our two-week social media calendars. Um, and I really enjoy doing that. I, I love the idea of putting puns into into the captions and, and trying to let the comedic side show through a little bit. Um, and I'm going to continue doing that because it actually does make me happy. Anyways, this episode was brought to you by the Cash App. Just kidding. We don't have sponsors. Maybe one day, but that's not why we're doing this. Have a good week.